This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty. Now, it's just over a year since we asked the question, why is the Home Office a nightmare? So today we ask, why is the Home Office still a nightmare? As Priti Patel seems to be struggling with the opening up of the refugee system to Ukrainians, whose fault is it? Is the Home Office too big? Actually, it turns out there are several government departments which are much bigger. Uh, so we've been speaking to some experts, former officials, special advisors, former ministers at the Home Office to try and get to the bottom of what is going wrong there. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel and they're back on a Monday. It is Libby Rachie. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. I want to talk about um, refugees and taking in a refugee and uh, whether you think, A, this is a nice idea, or is it... Because I got a little bit of this over the weekend of people saying that basically you weren't allowed to criticise the government's handling of the response, uh, basically, unless you were willing to have a family of Ukrainians in your loft. Uh, and I think... I don't know. Libby, first of all, what do you think of this? My 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 slight concern is that it is possible to be critical of the government without saying what well, is all your your response you know in the same way you can say well i want crimes investigated without being batman um the, the two don't necessarily go hand in hand that's that's true i mean i think i think that's a kind of a false a false equivalence yeah. it's a it's a grandstanding thing the point is anyone who does take in refugees should be i mean personally on a personal level should be absolutely aware that it could be for the long haul you're talking months you're talking months you may be talking years or helping them on through their lives thereafter it's not something you can do as a bit of a status thing and then get bored with after a couple of weeks and hand back over to the authorities uh, i think it's it's a very serious thing what i like is the suggestion i mean goodness the legalities of it will be difficult but they might be might be possible uh, to confiscate some of these enormous houses and <laughs> totally empty in investment flats belonging to people uh, who are sanctioned on a close to the Putin regime and saying, OK, these are for Ukrainians for the next what? But you have to say, you know, a year, five years, whatever. Uh, I mean, that's a fascinating idea, actually, sort of 
tit for tat. But no, as as to individuals, I I really think you have to say it's a serious thing. I think a lot of people will do it. I think it's wonderful, uh, but it's quite tough, you know. And most people in this country do not live in houses with an awful lot of spare room. And uh, you know they have their own families to think about and their own dependents to think about. So it's a it's it's a serious thing. The other thing, Rachel, is that the, it's a slight diversion from the when we were talking last week about how it was fifty and then it was three hundred and then it was a thousand people who'd applied to come who'd had their visas approved out of what was it twenty three twenty five thousand uh, applications. Those are people who don't want to come and sleep in my spare room. They want to be reunited with their family in the UK. The issue mm. was mm. the Home Office actually being a bit rubbish at um, processing people with family here. Yeah, it's a kind of big society reaction, yes, isn't it, yes, to a crisis. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. back to David Cameron Do you want to be the lollipop society. lady? Yeah, exactly. Um, but what I think is really interesting about this is that the issue has been taken away completely with this scheme from the Home Office and from Priti Patel. Yeah. And now uh, refugees and asylum seekers are a levelling up issue for Michael Gove. Uh, and he's talking about, as, as Libby said, taking Roman Abramovich's house in Kensington Palace Gardens, his 15-bedroom mansion, which would house quite a lot of Ukrainians. But suddenly it isn't now all about talking tough on immigration and closing the borders and just say no, which is the Home Office mode modus operandi is how can we turn this into a sort of fairness issue which politically I think is absolutely fascinating that the government has decided the Home Office is not institutionally capable and Priti Patel is not personally capable of dealing with this on a sort of compassionate level which yeah. is more in keeping with where the British public are. Libby? I was just, I'm sorry, I got distracted then because you mentioned big society and I've been very thrilled by the fact that the big society is now represented entirely by Rod Stewart. Who is filling, <laughs> he is filling in potholes down his own lane and his wife is a special constable. That's a who'd good have point. Thought, who'd have thought? thought years ago that the big society would basically be led by Rod Stewart? Rod Stewart and Penny Lancaster, they are keeping all the country be, afloat. And it, does, it takes us back to the refugees. Yes, we should all be doing, whether it's fundraising, you know, whether it's campaigning, whether it's having a family and we all should be doing something about refugees and not just Ukrainian refugees. There's a difficult thing here where there is a faint sense that we are more anxious to house Europeans than we ever were Africans or Middle Eastern refugees. And I think we need to have a little look at ourselves over that. Yeah, that, that's been... I think I heard on Times Radio yesterday, uh, Michael Gove was asked exactly about that. Why set up this scheme now for Ukrainians when they didn't do it for Syrians and Af- Af- Afghans? And his his sort of explanation was, well, all of the uh, accommodation and facilities available for refugees were filled with refugee, with Afghans and Syrians. And so this is why this was now needed. But I wasn't completely convinced that that was a, um, uh, a a full explanation. And actually, maybe, I think, you know, we saw there was an opinion poll, a Times uh, YouGov poll, end of last week, that showed that people were really angry about the government's response. You know, all, you know, well over half of people thought they were handling it badly. They thought that Priti Patel was deliberately trying to minimise the numbers coming. 7% say they were proud of, of, the, public's, of the government's response so far. Mm. Mm. Yes, I think uh, angrier. I mean, that that is the the interesting and edgy thing is that we seem to be broadly speaking as a per, as a people angrier about the Ukrainians than we ever were about the Afghans or the Syrians. 
And I think there's a sort of misunderstanding of among some conservatives, some right wing conservatives of those red wall seats where they won um, so many uh, constituencies at the last election that somehow, um, you know, the, the working class voters who live in those seats really anti, you know, just don't care about um, people from abroad and really uncompassionate. The opposite is the case. You look at where the biggest and most generous donations to things like comic relief come from is in those communities. So there is a real, it's a sort of myth, I think, that um, the compassion is only a sort of middle class, liberal chattering class issue. I don't think that's true. And I I think it's that thing, isn't it, of if you take a very simplistic view of immigration and Brexit, we must, you know, take back control of Brexit, of immigration means nobody comes here. And actually all the people want is control. And actually saying mm-hmm. we would, you know, say, well, these are the number of people that we think we can take from Ukraine. And then you have control and we've decided to do that. And if, you know, we think we can cope and it's a big, generous offer, then that's, that's a very different thing to the sort of pull up the drawbridge, make it as difficult as possible. It's only this limited group of people who can even apply. And I suppose that's the difference, isn't it, Libby? The the politics plays out in a slightly different way. Yeah, absolutely, yes. You're right. Um, Libby, let's talk about your column today, which I thought was really interesting. It sort of pulled together a whole load of different stories, you know, from, from gender reassignment in children to Grenfell to Anne Robinson. And it's not often a column manages to do all of that. Uh, but yeah. specific, specifically the, um, the, the cutting corners and when it's okay and when you need to remember that you cut a corner and go back to what you were doing before. Yes, yes, it, it's, I mean, so it was all a bit vague and James Marriotty, really, you know, sort of <laughs> philosophical. I adore young James, but uh, he's, he, he is, you know, he, he's better at it than me. He'll be delighted um, that he's now an adjective. Yeah. <laughs> it, be- it began with, with a phrase in the CAST report on the Gender Reassignment Service, kids saying that normal quality controls suffered in the huge increase of children demanding sex change. And I like that thought that normal quality controls, what they were saying is there was the psychiatric and social assessment and care and slowness there that specialists sort of had moved on maybe too fast. And I thought, actually, that is a universal principle. Um, at what point does the urgency of a situation or the media pressure or the money or the danger make you drop normal quality controls? And why is it so important that you should remember that you've done that? I mean, at the extreme, you have the massive negligence at Grenfell. Um, and in lesser ways, you have other engineering and building things or the police. Uh, getting so aerated about actual about hate speech that they don't look carefully enough as to whether an actual crime has been actually committed, um, and then even a case, the contrary case, the Home Office working out whether or not to drop normal visa controls over this refugee crisis uh, when it doesn't normally drop visa controls. It, it seems to me a, a sort of a universal human urge to say, actually, forget the rules. You know, this is special. And that's fine sometimes, you have to do it, but also you then have to say, we forgot the rules and we now have to kind of crawl back gradually towards them again. Uh, what, what do you make of this? Right? Cause, I mean, this, I mean, we saw it in the in the in the pandemic. The sense in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, the government was under a lot of criticism. They shoveled the money out the door and and so on, and cut some corners. In the mm. but then there was a slight sense that maybe that went up two year, eighteen months, two years on that maybe that those corners have remained cut for a bit too long. Mm. I think it's such an interesting idea. And actually, you know, it applies to the oligarchs, you know. So I thought Matthew Said had a really interesting column in the Sunday Times this week saying 
don't say, you know, don't remove the right of appeal of these oligarchs who are going to have their homes removed, uh, you know, or they're, they're um, going to be sanctioned and have their property um, frozen, that you can't go around. The thing that differentiates us from Vladimir Putin is that we don't go around seizing property. And so the rule of law really does matter. That is central mm. to a democracy. And actually, um, you know, that's why things like the prorogation of parliament were so malign and so bad, because that way, you know, that's the, the, the root of the despots. And actually, what um, distinguishes us from uh, Russia is the respect for the rule of law and, and um, democratic Absolutely. norms. Absolutely. And, and of course, another another example was the fact that the, uh, the Infectious Diseases Act does not actually give government the power to shut everybody up in their house in lockdown. It only gives the power technically to get an individual sort of TB or whatever victim, uh, you know, to keep to keep them segregated. And so you know, that, that is a huge corner cutting in government authority during the pandemic. And how, how I suppose the, the art of when knowing when to cut corners and when not to is quite an important one, isn't it, Libby? And if, if dare I suggest that if you've got a prime minister who is perhaps more relaxed about the cutting of corners, <laughs> uh, that that becomes a sort of institutionalised thing. And actually, you know, the, the tale that you lay out of, of just Grenfell, it's sort of oh, every... red tape. Red tape has its function, but... and it, the Grenfell is is a, a, a terrible sort of narrative of red tape being dodged around. It really is. And actually, what what if each person individually thinks it's okay if I just cut this corner, that's okay because it's only a small thing. But if everybody in the whole chain has cut a corner, I don't know what you end up with. Mm. Sort of circle of hell of like there's no corners. You know, there's no mm. checks and balances, and that's the problem. Isn't it? If a system, an entire system is cut every corner along the path, there's no checks and balances, and you end up in the situation with with, um, with Grenfell. And that's why the civil service actually needs to be independent and needs to be a bit bureaucratic sometimes, um, you know, and put question ministers and be able to say, look, hang on a minute, is this really right? Have we got enough checks and balances in here? Um, so, you know, all of this hard rain is going to fall on the civil service and they're all, you know, they're the roadblocks to reform. Actually, sometimes they might be just putting in place the protections that we all need. Libby Powers and Rachel Sylvester there. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, why is the Home Office still a nightmare? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Here's a familiar question. Why is the Home Office a nightmare? We asked this question almost exactly a year ago on this show. Turns out Priti Patel wasn't listening. As once again, critics line up to complain about the Home Office response to the Ukrainian refugee crisis. Before that, we had the crisis in confidence in the police, the crisis of the number of small boats crossing the channel, breaking new records. And of course, the crisis of the number of Afghan interpreters and so on who wanted to come to Britain last summer. Well, today the government launches another plan, a new humanitarian scheme to pair Ukrainians seeking asylum with people in the UK willing to open their homes. But it's been fronted by Michael Gove, the levelling up secretary, and not Priti Patel. He's got also the new minister, Richard Harrington, who's been drafted in to help Priti Patel in the department she leads. So today, almost exactly 240 years since it was created, we ask again, why is the Home Office still a nightmare? Let's start by speaking to Sir John Grieve. He was the permanent secretary in the Home Office. That's the highest ranking civil servant uh, running the Home Office between 2001 and 2005. Good morning, John. Yeah, morning. Um, what is the is the Home Office a nightmare? And if so, why? Um, well, it's certainly embattled. And I recognise the sort of criticisms from 15 years ago when I was there and we were struggling then with um, a crisis of asylum seekers coming through the Channel Tunnel and on on lorries and so on. Um, I think it's um, two things I'd say. Firstly, it's important to distinguish um, whether you're talking about administrative incompetence or decisions you don't like. So uh, on the Ukraine, for example, it's perfectly clear that the ministers decided early on they were not going to follow the EU in allowing visa-free access. And therefore, they had to set up visa schemes. And visa schemes means you have to have forms, you've got to have process, you've got to have rules, you've got to make identity checks and so on. Now, uh, I think a lot of the criticism of the Home Office is, well, we're we're not letting enough people in quickly enough. There's a lot of bureaucracy involved. And that was a decision by ministers to introduce visas, special visa schemes. And, and you've just announced the latest one. And I suppose, I, I suppose that's a distinction, isn't it? Is that some of the criticism is, well, why are there all these forms? And it's well, because we're not, you know, we're still requiring visas. I suppose the, the knock-on criticism is that actually for the first 10 days, two weeks of the Ukrainian conflict, we got a series of, um, uh, announcements going off half-cocked. We were told there was going to be a processing centre in Calais. Then we were told it was going to be in Lille. Then it turns out it's in Arras. Uh, and the, the, the ability to then process these applications, particularly when we went through a, a reasonably uh, similar uh, situation last summer with uh, Afghans too, they, they, even on their own terms, they, it appears not to be a world-beating, bespoke uh, system that sometimes the government likes to boast. Yeah, I'm, I think it's very difficult to set up these systems. Um, you get sudden bursts of activity. As you say, this isn't the first humanitarian crisis. Um, we had Syria, we had Afghanistan, and in each of those cases, there was a grinding of the gears while we 
tried to set up special schemes to allow a limited number of people to come into the UK. And we're in the same situation in the Ukraine. Um, I think, um, obviously, on the borders of Europe, um, the EU actually borders the Ukraine. It's a much simpler question, which is, here, the people at the border, are you going to let them in or not? And they've decided to let them in and given them a three-year pass without asking them to fill in any forms. Um, as I say, we could have joined that, um, but post-Brexit, obviously, we decided we, 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 didn't, we didn't have to and we decided not to. Um, yeah, but you could always do it quicker. You could, uh, you could get hold of more staff. But cranking up a machine to handle tens of thousands of visa applications isn't that easy. One of the um, criticisms that seems to come up all the time is that the Home Office is too big. It just tries to do too much, whether it's policing or immigration or national security um, and so on. Um, and there was more of this at the weekend. Civil, you know, friends, allies of Priti Patel saying it's like trying to turn a super tanker. But actually, if you look at the figures, um, it's what the fifth biggest government department. It's behind, It's about half the size of the Department for Work and Pensions and the Ministry of Justice, which has hived off from it. Um, uh, back under New Labour. It's smaller than HMRC. It's smaller than the Ministry of Defence. Um, I know it was just after your time when you were there at the Home Office when John Reid famously said it wasn't fit for purpose. Is there, is, there, is there any way of ever making the Home Office fit for purpose, do you think? I think it's... I think the Home Office is made up of some... Uh, it, different departments. It's much smaller than it used to be. It is effectively a Ministry of the Interior. It used to be the Ministry of Justice as well. Uh, I don't think it's too big in itself, but there are extreme pressures on it. First of all, political pressures, especially around immigration and terrorism um, and policing. The, the, these are frontline political issues which attract a lot of criticism, attention, and so on. Um, and secondly, they're all difficult areas. I mean, immigration and, to some extent, policing are, are millions of different cases, and each case can go wrong. So uh, an, uh, an organisation like the Home Office has lives with the possibility, firstly, that it will make the wrong decision, let the wrong person in or refuse the wrong person today. And secondly, it's got a back catalogue of mistakes that will have happened over the last 10 years, each of which could turn out to be a front page news. And I think, you know, moving, I, I worked in various departments. I cannot remember any department which was so fully in the headlines day by day by day. The press cuttings for the Home Office were three or four times as thick as those in the Treasury or the Department of Education. And that means that every mistake you make or are alleged to have made is liable to be on the front page. And just in terms of how long it would take to shift the culture, again, there were allies of Priti Patel at the weekend and from Number 10 sources too saying, well, it's a... It's the culture of it, you know, Priti's hard on, on immigration and so on and the lefty liberal hand-wringing officials don't want to get on and implement it and all that sort of thing. Um, and yet you sort of point out, well, you know, you've been Home Secretary now for almost three years. The Conservatives have been in power for almost 
12. How long does it take to turn a department round, do you think, John? Well, the culture of the Home Office is, is, first of all, there isn't a single culture. There are different parts of the organisation. There are thousands of people working for it and they have a variety of views. But one constant is they try and do what the government's asking them to do. And actually, the pressure from the government for more than the last 10 years, but certainly for the last 10 years, has been consistently on getting tougher on immigration, being more difficult, making it more difficult to come here and pushing people out who, sh who have arrived who shouldn't have arrived. And successive Home Secretaries, Mrs May was very prominent in this, um, as well as the current Home, Home Secretary, have come in with a view that the department's hopelessly wet and that it needs a big shake-up. Those, those pressures, of course, affect how the department behaves and make them sceptical of claims and perhaps make them slower to set up new schemes for relaxed access than they otherwise would be. There have been no prizes for being um, relaxed about immigration controls in the Home Office for as long as I can remember. So, John, it's really good to speak to you. Thank you very much for giving us that perspective from a from a civil servant's, former civil servant's perspective, so John Giever was Permanent Secretary at the Home Office from 2001 to 2005. So that's the officials. What about the political side? What's the Home Secretary up, actually up against? How's the current one doing? Well, I caught up with James Starkey, who was Pity Patel's Chief of Staff when she first became Home Secretary, and he told me what he found most difficult was the extra scrutiny given to those issues that the Home Office has to deal with. I had a quick look at the kind of polling on where people put issues uh, before before we came on. And, you know, over time, immigration was number one for years. Obviously, Brexit slightly changed that. And you, you've now got the rise of, funnily enough, things like the environment, I think, is, is third at the moment. But immigration and crime will tend to figure consistently over a very long period of time, the top two of the four issues at any given time. So it's always the case that if anything happens in that area, it's just absolutely hot button issue. And then, as you say, they're things that people they play on people's fears. Uh, so, you know, if you're talking about um, criminal records, you know, the, that that is a fear that you know people are losing in society that we don't know about. And, and, and you know, as you alluded to kind of slightly half jokingly, but it's true. You know, if it's kind of farming records, people aren't probably going around the country worried about whether or not we've got the, the right records on, you know, uh, you know, what, what's going on with crops, for example. And what about, you, you talk about polling. For a long time, Priti Patel, we were told, polled incredibly well uh, for the Conservative Party. She, you know, she appeared at lots of events during the 2019 election and, and so on. And yet, on this specific issue of the, the question of uh, dealing with refugees coming from Ukraine, this is polling incredibly badly. I mean, there was a poll for YouGov, uh, poll by YouGov for the Times. Six in ten people think the government, British Britain's not doing enough. Only seven percent think Priti Patel wants to help Ukrainians coming to the UK. Fifty-five percent think she's making it as hard as possible for people to come. And I suppose is this a bit of the the in peacetime, if you like, concern about immigration? where actually being very hardline has played quite well for Priti Patel in the past. Is she calling this wrong on this one, do you think? There's been a long-term conflation of two quite different issues with regards to the Home Office, which is on the one hand, immigration and the immigration bill and you know who should come in to work and who should be allowed in, and asylum. And it's consistently the case that 
frankly, members of parliament get this confused, never mind members of the public. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, when people look at whether it's Afghanistan or Ukraine, you know, you, they want to help. They want to see those people be allowed in. It's through no fault of their own and they're in very desperate circumstances. And you're, you're also right that in terms of talking tough on immigration, you know, Pretty's done that, the Conservatives have done that, Labour are trying to do that. And certainly they did under, under Blair. And what I think tends to happen with the Home Office issue, and again, it goes to that unwieldy department, perhaps, is those two issues collide and people find it difficult to separate the cases of wider immigration, which is yeah, how many people should we be allowing in the country each year and on what basis, the points based system, for example, that came in after the 2019 election and asylum, which is actually a totally separate issue. And it shouldn't. It obviously cannot be done on a points-based system. It needs to be done on need at the time. Um, and do you think, given given the complexities of it, and you were her, you were Pretty Patel's chief of staff for six months when she first took the job, is she up to the job of getting a grip on the Home Office? I mean, she's been there now for almost three years, and on all the big things that she likes to talk about, whether it's the number of people coming across the channel, concentrated immigration, or whatever. Um, th none of that seems to be making any difference. And once again, you know, we, the, the, the issues with you trying to process Ukrainians coming to the UK is an almost carbon copy of the issues we had last year with, with Afghans. Is she up to the job of being Home Secretary, do you think? I believe she absolutely is. And I think that, um, as I said, I think it's the case that the home, the home Office itself has a record. There are always going to be difficulties for reasons we've discussed. But there has been, you know, there's been a load of successes in the Home Office. The immigration bill came in. The EUSS scheme is actually pretty successful. Quite, I'd, I'd strongly argue it was more successful than the scheme that was brought in by the EU for British citizens abroad. Um, on policing, policing numbers are going up as promised in the uh, 2019 manifesto. So I think there's been a range of successes, but as, as you alluded to, it is the case that when there are any issues, they're magnified. And just finally, do you think that the answer, because Theresa May famously survived for a very long time in the Home Office in a job which used to be sort of the graveyard of political careers. But is the answer to that to, to just not do very much, not draw attention to yourself very often? She used to disappear for lower, large periods. It, do you think the fact that actually Pitta Patel is a slightly more combative politician goes and sort of takes it to the opposition, takes it to particular groups that she, she doesn't like, you know, is, is a fan of some strong rhetoric? That actually that draws attention to her, which which actually puts a spotlight at the Home Office in a way that somehow Theresa May actually managed to avoid for large parts of her time there. Um, I think you might have a point in that, Matt. I think there's a you know difference in style in the sense that um, Theresa did keep a low profile. I think she also had a broad objective with the Home Office, which was to totally stay out of operational issues and focus on higher policy. And I think when you were able to distance yourself from operational issues, when there's issues, you can say, that's not me, you know, it's it's someone else and, I, and I'll deal with that. And I think Pretty's always going to be going to take a different approach than than Theresa. There's there's pluses and minuses to both of them. And I think now she's up to around three years which in terms of term. She's done a fairly decent term. Theresa obviously did slightly longer. But, you know, like you said, if you if you take a kind of more high profile approach, it, you know, it's going to be tricky because, as as we said, those issues are always going to be front and centre. And some speculation that this 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 handling of this issue might end up costing her a job. Do you think Pretty Patel can survive as Home Secretary? I 100% do. And I think we've heard this speculation on a number of occasions. Um, and I think we've seen the Prime Minister back her on a number of occasions. They've been close for a long time. My understanding is they work very, very close together. So, I mean, we've kind of 
seen and heard this before. Let's now uh, check in with Caroline Noakes, a former immigration minister. Hi, Caroline. Morning, Matt. Also on the line, we've got Colin Yeo, who's an, who's an immigration law specialist and author of the book Welcome to Britain, which looks at exactly how the system works. Hi, Colin. Good morning. Um, Caroline, your reflections on being a minister in the Home Office... Is it fit for purpose? Is it too big? Is it just the nature of doing lots of complicated, often headline-grabbing things? Or is there something about... Is it possible, you know, to be a Home Secretary who does manage to get things done? Yeah, I think it's perfectly possible to be a Home Secretary who manages to get things done, but it is a big, unwieldy organisation dealing with very high-profile and complicated issues. You heard earlier from the former permanent secretary there talking about whether it's policing or the challenges around national security. You know, when I was a minister there, we were coping with uh, challenges around policing and the fire service. We had the Salisbury poisoning, so a really huge national security issue and Windrush. So it was a really difficult time. And I saw at first hand that being a department that was in the spotlight and the front pages of the newspapers day in, day out, is incredibly challenging for, for any government department. As a result, does it make everyone a bit paranoid and a bit more sort of prone to covering their backs rather than doing things proactively? No, I think that would be very unfair to characterise okay. it as that. I think not only uh, at a political level, people want to, to affect change and to improve uh, the services that are being delivered by the Home Office, but also at official level. I only ever encountered really hardworking Home Office officials who wanted to get things done, who uh, were genuinely distraught at mistakes that had been made and were, were continually striving to make things better. Um, Colin, what's your assessment of the, the state of the Home Office and the immigration system right now and its ability to... I mean, it seems to uh, be very bad at day-to-day run-of-the-mill cases. You know, we've got huge backlogs of uh, asylum seekers, refugees, you know, people who want to come to the UK. But also it's not very good at sort of spur-of-the-moment um, uh, issues that come along, like suddenly trying to set up a scheme for Ukraine too. Yeah, I think there are, there are two problems at two different levels. I, one is that there's a lot of evidence that the Home Office is just being badly managed at the moment. So if you look at the delays... For asylum decisions, um, it, it's it's really going through the roof. There's a, a huge backlog that's building up, and that's that's all quite new. And it's also um, it's not because there's been a particularly big increase in the number of asylum applications or anything like that. It's just that um, things have really slowed down within the Home Office, and it's not because of resources either. I was looking at the the stats the other day, and actually um, there's there's more caseworkers in the asylum department, for example, than there have been um, before. So there's there's kind of a, a basic competence problem, but there's also then I think a real mismatch sometimes between what ministers say they want and their sort of political pronouncements and the sort of theatre of politics and then what's actually feasible on the ground and just some of the things that they, they politicians seem to want to happen just aren't possible really or worse they're going about it in, in, in a way that's actually counterproductive and we see that with something like small boats. And do you, I suppose there is that difference between the rhetoric and reality, uh, Caroline, which can cut both ways. Sometimes it's endless, endless kite flying and crackdowns on small boats coming across the channel while the numbers go up and up and up and that has no impact. Or sometimes the reverse, which is what we've seen with Ukraine, is promising a world-beating, bespoke humanitarian route into the UK, which actually, as we've been hearing this morning, so far helped 4,000 people, which is a drop in the ocean compared to to other uh, countries. 
it, it, do you think on the on the Ukrainian issue, um, there was a poll out from uh, YouGov for the Times last week. I think it was like fifty five percent of people thought that actually Priti Patel was deliberately trying to minimise the number of people coming here. Do you think that's a fair criticism? And is it her or the Prime Minister? No, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think Priti is trying to minimise the number of people coming here. They have said very clearly from both the Home Office and the Department for Leveling Up, there is no numerical limit. I mean, I think it's really important to, to draw the analogy that James Starkey did earlier. So if you look at the EU settled status scheme, that was something that took years to bring to fruition. And I was the minister for a hefty part of the, um, not just the implementation, but the actual putting, building the structures to make sure that it worked. So that's what happens in normal time. You get uh, many, many months and the opportunity to, to test things in a sort of a settled state before you actually open it to the public. With the Ukrainian humanitarian demand uh, and the importance of getting that up and running, they don't have months or indeed years to put that into practice. We have to be able to do it now. And I think that's one of the areas of failing of the Home Office is that it finds it very difficult to respond quickly to a crisis, which I'm sure is why we've seen the Department for Leveling Up brought in to assist. It's why there is a, a cross-government effort with uh, involvement from both the Department of Health and Social Care, bringing over sick Ukrainian children, why we've seen the Education Secretary get involved, looking at the provisions that can be put in place to educate those children. Um, but I think there is a real challenge that the Home Office has in responding to crisis situations. It has its sort of its settled pattern of work but it's being asked to 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 redouble those efforts in a crisis and that's what it's finding difficult so I, I, we started this conversation by saying that it was almost exactly a year ago we asked why is the home office a nightmare do you think we'll be back here i'll ask you both of the, the same question we'll be back here in 12 months it might be a different issue but it'll be the same problems being highlighted is the home office always a nightmare caroline um, it, it's not always a nightmare, but it's always facing, facing nightmare challenges. And that's the reality is that it's very high profile. It's dealing with very difficult issues and you can't predict where the next crisis will come from. What about you, Colin? What's your, what's your, your assessment? Is it, is it just the nature of the department that it always, always faces these problems? I think there's some truth in that. And the, one of the problems that we've seen at the Home Office is that they, they shuffle resources internally to, to deal with whatever the latest crisis this is and it's a classic problem of failing to to mend your roof when the sun's shining you know, kind of everything moves to uh, crisis mode on whatever the latest thing in the headlines is and other things get forgotten unfortunately in the meantime um, and then you know they'll flare up again later so it's this kind of constant cycle That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box podcast don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from and you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.